right? And it is not the only kind of intimacy that is important in marriage. In fact, of course, all kinds of intimacy fit together physical and spiritual and emotional as you come together in friendship. That's why the Song of Solomon is so beautiful. The woman has this great desire for her husband, her friend. So there is a, an emotional and a spiritual intimacy that are to come together with physical intimacy, and, and we do not pursue one apart from the other. We don't say, well, we need physical intimacy, but I'm not going to be relationally, emotionally, or spiritually intimate with you. We demand these, the, the physical intimacy without providing the other kinds of intimacy. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading again verses 27 through 30, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. We continue in our walk through the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon that Jesus preached early on in his ministry as he lays the foundation for what it means to live in the kingdom. And we've come to a series of exhortations, really a, an exposition of what it means to have a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And this is part of it, and it's very challenging. It's challenging to preach uh, on these commands. It's challenging to consider how best to present them to you, but this is the reality of what Jesus said. And so we preach it, we teach it, and we take it to heart that we might truly become the kingdom citizens that the Lord would have for us to be. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Please be seated. I mentioned to you last week that the issue of adultery, of immorality, of, of a abuse of what God has given us for sexual intimacy had, had an impact on my life through my parents and the churches they went to and several of the pastors of those churches who did not choose to remain true to this command, to the command not to commit adultery. But it has also had a, had a much more personal impact when Elisa and I were engaged. One of the things you be, certainly you begin to talk about everything. And one of the things that we talked about was physical intimacy and what the Lord would have for us ultimately when we were married. And she revealed to me early on that that in her high school life, that she had, had been a man who was in her life, an acquaintance of her parents that had abused her sexually. I didn't really know what to do with that at the time. It's hard to know exactly, you know, I hadn't really been prepared for any of that sort of thing. And so I just kind of, you know, I nodded and we talked about it and we tried to look at scriptures and I didn't really have any idea as to how, what kind of impact that would have as we moved into marriage, but it had a very, very severe one. It had a, an impact on our own physical intimacy. And something that we worked through for many years. 
And yet I'm thankful to the Lord that by his grace, he brought us to the truths of scripture. He, he enabled us to keep working through the issue so that we might continue to progress together in the kind of intimacy that the Lord would have. Now, as we're talking about this issue of adultery, we're really broadening it out a bit to all kinds of sexual immorality because all of that relates together. And I would be a fool to think that there weren't those here who haven't experienced similar things as Elisa and myself and as Elisa experienced. And so I do understand that as I talk about the need for sexual purity to pursue intimacy in the proper kinds of ways, and we'll be talking much about that this morning, that there are some who sit this morning going, you have no idea. And I will never see sexual intimacy as something that is beautiful and wonderful because of the things that have happened to me. But, but what I want to encourage you with, even as I enter into this, is that we are to see things through the lens of Scripture to see things through the lens of, of how the Spirit of God works in our hearts and lives. And so while we'll be, be talking very, very frankly, and, and as is appropriate about these things, and as the challenge will be that we would know and understand what God has created intimacy for, that I would also encourage you to know that, that I am aware, that others are aware, that, that these things can be extremely difficult. So having said that, Sexual purity in marriage and before marriage is a vital component of our testimony to a dying world, that Christ is supremely worthy and that a relationship with him is to be desired above all others. And we will see again this morning as we work through Jesus's command that adultery is driven by idolatrous, selfish sexual desire, and it must be defeated by a renovation of the heart and radical amputation of sinful lust and its causes. Adultery is driven by idolatrous selfish sexual desire. It must be defeated by a renovation of the heart and radical amputation of sin, of sinful lust and its causes. And last week we looked at the sin of adultery itself. What is it? Why was it said of old? Why is it said in the Old Testament that adultery is wrong, that we are not to commit adultery? Well, it's a violation of God's design for man and woman. God created in the beginning, male and female, and he designed them for a particular purpose. And one of those purposes was intimacy. And one of the ways that that intimacy is expressed is through physical intimacy. And so when we are, when we engage in adultery, when we, when there are those who with outside the bounds of marriage pursue sexual intimacy, they violate the very reason for which they were created male and female or their very design. Also, we talked about the fact that it certainly directly is a violation of the marriage covenant. When you stand before your spouse on the, or your spouse to be on the day of your wedding, what do you say? You say, I do. I do what? I will be committed to you for the rest of my life. And one of those areas of commitment is in physical purity. And so it's a direct violation of the covenant that you have made, not only to that person, not only with the people that are there, but the covenant before a holy God. And of course, in a world that does not believe in a holy God, this marriage covenant is increasingly tossed aside, cast aside. But the great travesty is that unfortunately, Christians do this as well. And they do it oftentimes beginning with adultery, beginning with sexual immorality. We also talked about the fact that the sin of adultery is a violation of the relationship of Christ and the church. The picture of it and then also the very intimacy that we are to experience with Christ is marred as we, as we pursue and as we engage in sexual immorality. We were designed to be intimate. And, and, and physical intimacy was designed to be a picture of the intimacy of Christ with his church. And so we ruin that picture and we harm the value of Christ before a watching world and with those that we engage in intimacy inappropriately with. 
We also talked about then the heart of adultery. That was the sin of adultery, the heart of adultery. And Jesus moves from the fact that you've, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's true. He's not denying that, but he moves it inward as every sin ultimately must be. And he says, I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So while the Pharisees and the scribes and why does our tendency to focus on the external act, which certainly is sinful, which certainly violates God's command, we will never defeat the external act if we don't deal with our hearts. We can never just focus on, well, I, I will try not to commit adultery externally if, we are, if you are choosing to remain lustful in your hearts. Because even if you don't actually commit the physical act of adultery, you will be violating the command of God in your heart. And the ultimate judgment is the same. The consequences are not the same. The destruction of intimacy between a man and a woman is not exactly the same with internal adultery and external adultery. But nonetheless, God views it as adultery. He views it in his, in his eternal economy and justice system as equal to the physical act of adultery. And so he says, if a man looks at a woman with lust for her, he has already committed adultery. So that was our idea of a second glance, not simply seeing a woman or a woman seeing a man. And remember, this, can, this certainly works both ways. Fascinating that he uses the man because so often in, in, in ancient times, and really up until our present day, the man gets a pass when it comes to sexual morality. It's always the woman's fault, and certainly that was true at the time, at the time of Christ. So it says a man or a woman, ultimately, who looks with lust, it means that there has to be a contemplation of the, a, a, an idolatrous and selfish desire to have something that is not your own. So we talked about that hard, idolatrous and selfish sexual desire, not sexual desire itself. That was, it is commended by God, it was created by God, and it is designed by God for a particular purpose. He loves it, and so should we, ultimately, in the right context and pursued according to biblical principles. And then we began last week with the cure for adultery, and that's as we moved into verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says the same thing about the right hand. In order to avoid this sin or to keep this sin from taking hold of you, it is worthwhile. Jesus used a metaphor here. It is, it is, he commends to us that we do everything possible with the, and, and using this violent illustration of a physical mutilation, which he is not commending the physical mutilation, but the idea of that kind of intense effort recognizing the danger of sin and the danger of sexual immorality here specifically. But of course, this broadens out to any sin. Scripture is clear. Romans chapter, chapter 12 says that we are to abhor evil, not dislike, not try to you know, avoid, not maybe keep ourselves a little bit from. We are to abhor it. The strongest possible language for any kind of sin and every kind of sin. But certainly, again, Jesus' primary application here is to adultery. We tear out the eye, we cut off the hand that might, com that might help us or enable us to, to accomplish this sin. And that's where I would like to go more in detail this morning. And this morning, I'd like to spend time on what we might call the negative aspects of this radical imputation. That is the cutting off, the fleeing of immorality. Dr. Barrick will be speaking next week, and then we will finalize, Lord willing, these sermons on, on the week after that, talking about the positive side, how we glorify God in our body. But it is necessary that we understand what it means to flee, what it means to cut off, what it means to put away before we can put on that which is righteous and good. Because you, you And many seek to do this. Well, we'll try to put on the righteous and good, but we won't put off the sin. So I'll continue to have temptation. I'll continue to put those things before my eyes, even as you try to pursue what is right and good in your relationships. And so you've got teenagers that are all, I know I need to be pure. And yet they're, they're putting before their eyes and their minds, uh, their thoughts, their computers, these things which are impure. 
knowing they're supposed to pursue purity, trying to put into place some of the things that would enable that, but undermining it all along the way with the sins that they are involved in that they will not cut off. Of course, teenagers aren't the only ones that do this. It just works its way out, becomes a little more subtle oftentimes. Uh, Adults are a little better at hiding it. But nonetheless, we must learn to put off, we must learn to flee immorality. Go ahead and turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not going to exposit this, but really this is speaking to, to in large degree to the negative side or the put off side of how we are sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul takes this, takes on this sin directly because the city of Corinth was a place that was, that was rampant with sexual immorality. I mentioned this last week, literally thousands of, of prostitutes that would ply their trade in the streets all in the name of religious worship. And he says, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. This is 1 Corinthians 6. Food is for the stomach. Stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Paul's making a very clear distinction here between uh, just normal appetites even, the desire for food, food that goes into the stomach. He goes, the Lord's going to do away with both of those. But the idea of intimacy, which is connected to sexual intimacy. He says the idea of of morality or or immorality, that is using our bodies inappropriately when it comes to physical intimacy, is something that is really on a different level. Because the body is created for the Lord. There's a special intimacy we're supposed to have and immorality in a different way even than abusing, eating food or other things, other physical appetites. Immorality has a special impact upon that intimacy. Now God has not only raise the Lord, but he will also raise us up to his power. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And Paul certainly is not holding back in his language here as he speaks of what a travesty that would be. The idea that that could even be possible for a believer who is in union with Christ to engage in that kind of sexual immorality to Paul is absolutely unthinkable and again, different even than the abusing of other physical desires of food or or perhaps other things. Verse 16, Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. And that's our focus this morning. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. There's a special nature to this sin because it is connected so deeply to our ability to be intimate, not only with one another, but also with the Lord. I'm not making it up. That's what the scripture says. And I can't explain to you all of the reasons why that is. There are many, and all of them certainly we don't know. But he clearly lays aside or lays out this particular sin as one which has a a particularly devastating impact upon our, our intimacy with the Lord and our intimacy with one another. Or do you not know, he says in verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. That is not a verse about what to eat. It's not a verse about food laws. It is a verse about morality, about purity when it comes to sexual things, and that our body is never to be used for anything impure because God created it. And he is in union, if you are a believer, is in union with you in it. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That will be two weeks. That will be focused on glorifying God. You have to have both. But first, for this morning, let us consider what it means to flee immorality first by replacing unbiblical beliefs about sexual intimacy that lead to adultery. That is, when you have unbiblical beliefs about what sexual intimacy actually is, that leads you down the road towards adultery. 
And again, I'm going to broaden this out to include fornication, that is uh, sexual immorality out or before marriage, essentially. We're going to broaden it out to include both of those, although our text deals directly with the sin of, of being uh, involved with someone whom, to, with whom you are not married. We're going to broaden it out to include, and Scripture does, uh, those who are unmarried and those who are in, involved in physical intimacy, sexual intimacy before marriage. So the, the first unbiblical belief that you need to put aside if you are not going to have the kinds of attitudes which will lead you towards sexual immorality is that sexual intimacy is somehow unspiritual. Now, I covered that a lot last week, so I'll do this quickly. But if you don't understand that sexual intimacy is something that the Lord has created, something beautiful and special and good, something that reflects his character and his nature, something that makes him ultimately look beautiful and valuable, then you will treat your sexuality inappropriately as something that you can just do anything you desire with. Or you will treat it as something that is dark to be set aside, but you cannot deny how you were made. You cannot pretend that you don't have desires for sexual intimacy. You cannot pretend that somehow those things will go away if you just don't talk about them. And when you try to do it, you, you ultimately end up creating arenas for yourself to sin, either privately and personally or with someone else. So we have to put away this idea that sexual intimacy is unspiritual. And I think you all should get, I think I've mentioned this before, but I would encourage you all to get and read, of course, at the appropriate age, the, the book entitled Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. It is edited by John Piper. His first two chapters are about how uh, sexual purity relates and, and sexual desire relates to the nature of, of the value of Christ. And it is must reading for married couples. It is much re must reading for those who are going to enter into marriage, which is 99% of you. Of course, again, it needs to be read at the proper time. But I would say even parents to take your, as you begin to, to consider how you will discuss these things with your children, that this would be a primary book for you to work your way through. It also has an excellent chapter on how to pursue relationships in a way that would please and honor the Lord. And so just kind of by way of review of last week, and through the means that, that kind of the outline that John Piper uses, he said this, he says this, and by the way, you're going to have to put all this in underneath the major headings that I gave you. All right, so you, you get the major headings, but all the minor ones you'll have to try to get in if you want to take notes, is that sexuality is designed by God as a way to know him more fully. Sexuality is designed by God as a way to know him more fully. That is what the Bible says. And so he designed it specially for that purpose. And when it's abused, therefore, we are abusing our ability to know God. The Bible is full of graphic sexual imagery, both negative and positive, right? Not, well, not with the lewd kind of stuff that goes on today, or unfortunately, the uh, really the unfortunate and, and overly graphic stuff that tends to come from pulpits today. Like we're going to undo this, you know, hiding of sexual intimacy by somehow making this blatant lewd stuff come from the pulpit. It's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't do it. We don't need to do it. It has to be talked about, but not in the way the culture talks about it. What a horrid thought. We would somehow grab TV language or movie language and say, let's just blast that out to everybody. That'll help. Now, all that will do is tie in this, the beautiful picture of what Christ has done with the smut that's out there. We will not do this. But the Bible doesn't, doesn't pull punches. I'm not saying that. So you need to go where the Bible goes, but we don't go further than that. Both, again, both negative in Ezekiel 16, positive and negative in Hosea 1 through 3. And then I've already mentioned several um, passages from the Song of Solomon, which is certainly adult reading. Right? It's certainly something that you read through that, and, and even, even with all of the, the metaphors and all of the flowery language, there's certainly much that is like, wow, that's something to cons consider carefully. So again, another place for parents to go with their children when they begin to discuss these issues of intimacy. But certainly, the Bible, sexuality makes it clear that it's designed by God as a way to know him more fully. 
Bible's full of the graphic imagery. And then, of course, as we've talked about, marriage as a whole is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. And one of the aspects of that fundamentally is the, is, is the physical union, physical intimacy. And John Piper says it this way. God created us in his image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passions, so that when he comes to us in this world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. And he's got it right on. We don't equate physical intimacy with our intimacy with Christ. Again, that's the mistake of the false religions. But we see a picture of it there, and it, and it should be a blessing and an aid to us in our relationship with Christ. The, the next issue under the fact that uh, sexuality is designed by God as a way to know him more fully and that it is, it is a scriptural thing, it is not unspiritual, is that sexual intimacy is designed to bring delight and pleasure, which is why I opened up with the illustration that I did, because there are so many in our society harmed by sexual abuse who say, that's never going to happen. I will never find delight in sexual intimacy because of the things that have been done. And yet that is what it was designed for. And there is a way to reclaim that and to work your way back towards that. It is possible because all things are possible in Christ, including that. And both men and women are going to have to understand this and work through this. And, and it can at times take years, but it is worth it because sexual intimacy was designed by God in a special way for delight and pleasure. And it is something to be pursued here on this earth. And it may not, must not, cannot be simply ignored or your relationship with God is harmed. Even when there's been great, great difficulty in this area, it is something that must be pursued and worked on, and really in that way will bring a greater intimacy as well. Now, I read you a passage last week. I'll read it again from the Song of Solomon to slam home this point that sexual intimacy is designed for delight and pleasure. Here's from the side of the woman. It says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. She's like, I, I got you. The maidens love you, but I'm, I'm the one that's got you. That's a really good thing really wonderful thing. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Song of Solomon 5, 10, and 16. I certainly am not going to read everything that's in the Song of Solomon, nor even in that passage, but two of the verses taken again from the woman's side, because I do th think sometimes this is viewed as kind of a man thing, and men have this kind of desire, and women don't, and they're not supposed to benefit from it. And as I've said, it, it tends to operate in a different way in men and women. It's expressed a bit differently or thought about usually. But the idea of physical intimacy is, is to be pursued and is to be delighted in by both men and women. Song of Solomon 5.10, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. It's the best. He looks great. Verse 16, his mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. You see, friendship and sexual intimacy are not opposite poles. Right? In marriage, they are to come together. They are part of the equation. They come in, as a package. In marriage, that friendship is a, is a and in marriage, a special way of expressing friendship. And again, in marriage alone is physical intimacy. And that, again, was the woman praising the glories of her husband at that point, married by Song of Solomon chapter 5, courting in Song of Solomon 1 verses 2 through 4. So sexual intimacy is designed to bring delight and pleasure. And, and, and then thirdly, under this, under this point of putting aside things that are putting aside the, the idea that sexual intimacy is unscriptural, 
is knowing God is that knowing God is designed by God as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality. You see, our sexuality is a means of our understanding intimacy with God and knowing God more deeply then becomes a means by which our sexuality is protected. They go together. When we understand what it means to be intimate and and how scripture describes that, we begin to get a picture of our relationship with God. And as we deepen in our relationship with God, we get a better picture for how we can keep ourselves by his grace and his power from corrupting the intimacy that he designed for us to have. Now, Romans 1, I'm not going to go there this morning, but Romans 1 is very clear that rejecting God leads ultimately to what? Sexual corruption. Which again, if you think I may, well, let's go there. Romans chapter 1. Because again, there are some who just, well, Jesus clearly didn't think that this was a minor deal. That's why we started this whole discussion. The Bible doesn't think it is. If you think that even this idea of equating sexual intimacy with a relationship with God and with a love for him, if you think that, that again, that's going too far, well, what we find in Romans chapter one is that when we reject God, one of the primary ways and really the fundamental, the deepest way in, in which it is expressed that we are rebelling against God is when we pervert our sexuality. There's many ways we do it, but the perversion of sexuality all the way down to then the reversal of roles. I will not act as a man. I will not act as a woman, or I will lust after men as a man or lust after women as a woman all the way down to that is the ultimate expression of, I will, I will set aside the purpose of God for me. Romans one uh, in verses 18 through 21, he really describes how men have said, how he has made himself known and men have rejected him. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So they knew he was there. They knew uh, that he was the great God and they rejected him. So they professed to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. They began by worshiping other things. So we put other things in the place of God. It's the beginning of the corruption. But it continues, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All forms of idolatry are an expression of the fact that we will not have God over us. But it goes on further. It goes deeper than that. As God gives them over to that kind of worship, here's what happens. They begin to worship themselves and their own ability to control themselves, their bodies in in an ultimate way. Because really, that's what idolatry is all about. It gets focused on an external object, but it's really all about worshiping myself. The external object is to give me what I desire. That's how that works. That's what an idol is. But really, pretty soon it just turns away from who needs external idols. I'll just worship myself. I don't have to set anything else up. And when I do that, I will begin to then treat my own body how I desire. Apart from what God has commanded, I will reject him in the most fundamental way. My personhood, my maleness, my femaleness, my sexuality. And so it says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned and the desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons a due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a, a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. The depraved bodies are matched by a depraved mind and it just degenerates from there. But we see that the rejection of God's, God's purpose for our sexuality leads to a corruption in, in very fundamental ways. And as we know God, so the rejection of God leads to sexual corruption, but knowing God leads to sexual purity. And so believers should, of course, be the ones who pursue sexual purity far above anything that the world could ever do. Yeah, we want to we wanna bring these, this truth to the world. We want to tell them that when they abuse their sexuality, it's harmful and that it hurts them. Certainly when it's, when it's heterosexual or homosexual, either way. But as believers, we simply should never, ever follow them 
And really to, to constantly proclaim to a world that they, they need to understand marriage properly, that they need to understand sexual passions properly. The only way they're going to do that is if they know God, if they acknowledge him, if they have been changed by him. First Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. There's the issue. If you do not know God, then you will express your sexuality in ways that are displeasing and dishonoring to the very God who created you to use them to please him. And if you are a believer misusing then your sexuality, then you are in those areas saying, God, even though I acknowledge you with my head, I refuse to live for you. Your relationship with God is being harmed at the deepest levels. There are many other verses that I could read uh, that, that involve the nature of knowing God leading away from lust. I don't have time this morning, but there are many. Exalting Christ ultimately then puts our sexuality in its proper place because physical intimacy and the delights that are found there are certainly not the greatest delights in the world. Ultimately, the greatest delight in this life and in the life to come is to find our full satisfaction in God alone. And when we understand that, then it puts our sexuality in the proper place. And so we do not idolize it above what God has created it for. We do not place it as the highest of all pleasures in our lives. What we place as the highest of all pleasures is to know Christ, to exalt Christ, to serve Christ. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. God is the one from whom all pleasure and all satisfaction come that is mediated through the person and work of Christ and then the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, Jeremiah 2.13, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sexual intimacy and the pleasures there cannot hold fully, cannot hold ultimately the satisfaction that we are to find in Christ. And so exalting Christ puts our sexuality in its proper place. It enables us to experience it and its delights in the proper way. And it keeps us from misunderstanding what God has done in making us male and female and in establishing marriage for the place in which we pursue sexual intimacy. So when we do away with ungodly thoughts, unscriptural thoughts about what sexual intimacy is, then we will begin to keep ourselves or, or provide ourselves the way to keep from adultery and sexual immorality. Well, let's move through these through some other ones, still under that original heading of setting aside wrong thinking, unbiblical thinking. Well, a, a second way to think unbiblically, not only we could think, well, the Bible, th Bible says that sexual intimacy is unspiritual. It doesn't. Secondly, we somehow could think that sexual intimacy is my right. And, and that is not the case. Although God has designed it for us and for our pleasure, it is a gift from him. It is only to be practiced in the way that God has stated, and it is always to be pursued in humility and, lo and love. It is not something that I deserve or demand. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, what does it say? We are to glorify God in our body. We have our body, we're, bodies were created by him. And so we do not dictate, well, it's my right. I, I deserve this. I ought to have this. Uh, I, have to, I will demand this. No, your body was given to you by God. It is he who, to whom and through whom all of, this, all of this flows. And so we do not demand it for ourselves. We pursue it in a way that pleases and honors the God who made our bodies. So it's not, and this is what the world says. It's my right. You can't tell me I can't pursue this. You can't tell me I can't do this. It's mine. No, it's God's. He gives it as a precious gift that he dispenses to his children. And we are to practice it, but it is not our right in that sense. 
Three, sexual intimacy, and again, these are just you're writing these in. Sexual intimacy, uh, this is a wrong is wrong thinking that somehow sexual intimacy is acceptable outside of marriage. No excuse of any kind will ever be received by God. None. Well, my parents were mean to me. I, you know, I didn't. We just didn't get the opportunity to to get married, and so we needed to do this first. Whatever it might be, we just, we just couldn't we couldn't control ourselves. God will receive no excuse, particularly from believers. Because he gave you the power, he's given you his Holy Spirit, he's given you the truth of his word, and he's given you your families, and he's given you the community of believers, all of those things to help protect you against failing in this area. I'm not saying that people don't fail, and I'm not saying that when you do fail, that that is somehow you've committed the unpardonable sin. It's a sin. It's wrong. It violates the, the, the picture of God in, in a very deep way. But you can confess and repent. And you should then pursue the means that God has given you to to pursue holiness from that moment. But the bottom line is our goal is that we would never pursue any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage ever. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators. Again, that's sex before marriage. And adulterers, that is sex with someone that's not my spouse outside of marriage or sexual intimacy. God will judge. Now, we're aware of that, but the weightiness of it doesn't come to bear in our lives unless God is weighty to us. No kind of sexual intimacy is acceptable outside of marriage. Nothing forces you to pursue sexual intimacy outside of marriage, and it is never legitimate at any time apart from a marriage vow where you've stood before someone in the presence of the the, uh, witnesses and, and before a holy God to say, I do, and I will be committed to you. The fourth wrong thinking that needs to be put away is that sexual intimacy is more important than all other kinds of intimacy. It isn't. It is the basis of, of a one flesh union. It's the, it's the picture of the one flesh, but it is not the only kind of intimacy. And there are marriages in which physical intimacy cannot be pursued at all, at least in, in some marriages. And most all it can be pursued in some ways. But even if that were not the case, it is not the physical union that creates the marriage. Don't, don't misunderstand what the Bible says about that. There's a special intimacy that comes, whether one is married or unmarried, when there is the physical union. But it does not create a marriage. Right? And it is not the only kind of intimacy that is important in marriage. In fact, of course, all kinds of in- intimacy fit together. Physical and spiritual and emotional as you come together in friendship. That's why the Song of Solomon is so beautiful. The woman has this great desire for her husband, her friend. And so there is a, an emotional and a spiritual intimacy that are to come together with physical intimacy, and, and we do not pursue one apart from the other. We're going to say, well, we need physical intimacy, but I'm not going to be relationally, emotionally, or spiritually intimate with you. We demand these, the, the physical intimacy without providing the other kinds of intimacy. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access 
a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.